change in broadcasting trailblazer Shushma Dat will be recognized at the upcoming Jack Webster Foundation Awards with the 2021 Bruce Hutchinson Lifetime Achievement Award, which honors an exemplary BC journalism career. Dad, who faced significant racism from mainstream media, persevered and started her own 24-hour South Asian radio station on a subcarrier frequency, later becoming the first Indo-Canadian woman to be granted a CRTC license with the launch of Spice Radio AM 1200 in Burnaby. Over the years, she's also produced and hosted television programming for Shaw and Omni, including the long-running Women in Focus. On this episode of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast, we're pleased to welcome Dat to talk about her media journey, how far the industry has come, and how far it still needs to go. Well, congratulations on your Lifetime Achievement Award. Sometimes people have mixed reactions about receiving these because while you semi-retired in 2020, you're still very much working. Yes, I've been wearing many hats throughout my life. Um, Being a broadcaster, behind the mic, in front of the camera. Um, So in 2020, I um, retired from my... 41-year-old television programming. Um, And I decided that I I did not want to do that anymore because it was with the multicultural channel. I was one of the founding members of that channel in 1979. And I decided that, um, you know, I was spending more money on that. uh, And I didn't see many people watching it because all the cable companies, Rogers and Shaw included, whereas they all... Uh, went to the commission, Ra Ra Ra. We are doing ethnic. We are doing multicultural. On the side, they also looked at the ethnic programmings from homeland, and assisted major cable companies or providers from, say, let's talk about South Asian uh, from India, and brought them over as subsidiary channels so that they could be a package for the South Asian community to buy and watch. So we were getting programming from these cable providers for maybe one program that we would buy and air it on our channel, whereas they were bringing the whole channel. So there was no way we were going to compete with that. So slowly and gradually, the viewership on the multicultural channel dropped and it was time for me to say goodbye to that television side of my profession and come back to my first love which is radio. Right I want to go back to to your early interactions with radio and when you knew that media or broadcasting was something that you really wanted to pursue. As a child I was fascinated by radio. I would listen to radio in Nairobi. I was born and brought up in Kenya And Kenya Broadcasting used to have morning show, afternoon show, evening show, two hours per morning, two hours afternoon, two hours in the evening, or maybe four hours in the evening. And there was a time that I got to go to a radio station as a part of our our school's uh, presentation. And I was fascinated by the equipment they had. I was fascinated by the program they did. And I got to speak one 
line and I fumbled it and and they made me say it a couple of times and uh, when it came on air my fumble was not there and I thought to myself what a magical world you can make mistakes and then erase them so that's the world I want to be a part of it took me almost 11 years after that uh, 10 years when we went to England I by mistake got into BBC and applied for a job as a typist and got a job as a Hindi typist with the Hindi service. And uh, I sometimes sit down and think about that and I believe that I was meant to be in this profession. It just it just opened doors for me. I wanted it and I got it. Right. So you arrived at the BBC, kind of at the height of the swinging 60s in London. <laughs> yes. Can you take us through some of the those professional stops that you made and your experiences as a woman of color at that time? Wow. Because I was um, hired as a typist, my boss at that time, who lives in India right now, Mark Tully, said to me, Shishma, are you interested in broadcasting? And I said, yes. And he said, go sit with those people who are doing their news broadcast and and listen to them and then come up with an idea and, you know, we will look at it. So I said, but I am not a news junkie. I I love music and that's what I would like to do. He said, okay, come up with an idea. And through that, um, it took maybe, so I joined them in 1966, took two years. And by 1969, I had my own show, Five Minutes music show, which the overseas service never had. It was all news, news, news and talk. And through that program, I got to meet legends of that time called, you know, Mick Jagger of Rolling Stones, uh, George Harrison of the Beatles, Townsend uh, of uh, The Who, and, you know, many other people. Uh, and, And that seemed like another lifetime for me. I was writing for Times of India. I was writing these very controversial articles about Jimi Hendrix when he released his huge album called uh, Bold as Excess. And it had the Indian gods and goddesses. And instead of their faces, he had put his own face and his drummers and his lead guitarist's face. And I went to the Indian High Commission saying to them, this is sacrilege. It hurts my religious feelings. I need this album to be removed. And the Indian High Commission people looked at me and said, yeah, that's never going to happen. <laughs> so I wrote that article. I still have that. It was written in Hindi in a magazine called Dharam Yug. And um, they got 6,000 letters. The Indian High Commission got 6,000 letters. I knew that there was power in, in journalism was power in writing articles. So for Dharam Yuga, I wrote from oh, 1967 to about 1970. So you were an early arbiter of pushback against cultural appropriation, which really was not a discussion at that time. Not only it wasn't a discussion, people would look at you and ignore you. Um, you were a non-entity. I remember, you know, going... On, on High Street in Honslow, where we lived, uh, mom said, you know, can you go and get some grocery or tomatoes is what I want. 
and my very first experience uh, at a grocery store to pick some tomatoes was the guy looked at me, the owner of the store, don't touch anything, he said. What do you want? I want tomatoes. I'll give them to you. And he, how much pound? So out of five or seven tomatoes, three were rotten. I wouldn't have picked those up, but that was given to me. That's your day-to-day -day life. You knew that you were not like the people of that land. You were different. And so I think to a certain extent, you sort of take it in your own stride because we all believed that this wasn't our country, England. Our country was Africa. We left it. So now we have to, you know, live by the rules of the people who live here. And if they are mean to you, so, you know, you can call them out on that. But, you know, you have to follow their rules and regulations. That is a different part of your life when you're growing up, right? But you realize later on in life that that incident and a couple of other incidents form a subconscious block in your mind where you will later on stand on and talk about racism in a big way. And, and that I feel we've done in 2015 when we started Raise Your Hands Against Racism here in British Columbia, a, a project that is, is in its seventh year this year. So what prompted your move to Canada in the early 70s? And what were your experiences trying to break into broadcasting here? It was a mistake coming, coming to this country because I was so happy with my profession in England. I was a studio manager. I was writing for Times of India. I was doing my show on the overseas service. I happened to get married to a person who lived here. It was an arranged marriage. I met him the day we got married and I realized that, you know, maybe this wasn't the right move, but you know, um, we're talking about the 60s, 70s. We had gone through a very tragic period in our personal life and my mother had was at, at her wit's end to see three daughters to be married. So I was the oldest and she said, this is a good match. You will go to a new country now make a new life for yourself, go ahead and do that. So I did. I did get married and I came here and I found that the opportunities that I had in England were not available here because I, I decided, you know, I am BBC, uh, so I should go to CBC and they will say, hey, Sushma is here, let's hire her. That didn't happen because in British Columbia, CBC didn't have a presence at that time. I'm talking about 1972. They used to have a small office on Alberni Street. And um, the person who met me said, well, uh, we don't have any live programming from here. And uh, we are a rebroadcaster at that time. So I, I didn't get a job with them and uh, tried other radio stations. And uh, I was told that I had three things against me. Uh, I'm a woman. I'm black. And I have a thick accent. Okay, so what do I do? There was a new radio station starting. They had already chosen their hosts for the South Asian community. And uh, I was told by the station owner, Jean Van Druchem, who uh, was the first uh, person to start a, a ethnic radio station here called CJVB 1470. I said, okay, I'll work with one of the people who, uh, who has a Hindi programming 
and uh, I joined them as their employee. Uh, well, it took three months before I was approached by the owner to take over the programming and do it. So that, in my mind, looking back at on that, wasn't a very nice thing for the owner of the station to do, although he looked at his own pocket and thought, hey, I've got a professional here. Why am I giving programming to people who are not professionals? Here is a professional. Let's just get her. But he didn't sit down with them and say, listen, this is the reason why I'm giving the program to uh, to Shushma. It was just that Sushma became a, a, a person who, who came, disrupted, took somebody else's programs. So the beginning and the start wasn't that, that smooth. So it's my understanding that all along while you were working at these other jobs, you were dreaming about starting your own radio station. That came, I think, in 1978. I was just doing two hours of programming per day, maximum three on one day. And I thought to myself, such a big, fledging community, I, I, it needs a 24-hour radio station, you know. There were other stations, like Ernie Mikadi's station, which was 1040. Uh, they all realized that to make money, just sell hours to ethnic people, you know, you have 15% of your daily broadcast you can give out to languages other than English and French. And that way they could make money. So very quickly, those stations started making money with people from the community trying to do a program. And I got out of radio at that time because I didn't could not sustain myself and got into television and started the first, became one of the producers of the Multicultural Channel. But I left it, left radio thinking that if I come back to it, it'll have to be a program for the community, by the community, and quality programming, not just playing songs, but talking about issues that are very, very important in the community. And and I saw issues that nobody talked about. Sex selection, uh, while having a child, nobody talked about that, but it was being practiced. The The role of women in the community, not respectful, I really bothered me a lot. But it took me almost 10 years before I could start Rim Jim in 1987. That's right. What was the build-up to starting that station? I think it was, television was so successful. Uh, the multicultural channel was really successful. And I was able to talk to people about issues. But there were many people that did not want to come on air, right, on, on television because they could be seen. So as far as the issues for women were concerned, I always felt that they were marginalized community. I, I thought that doing a program on radio where we could talk about all the issues would help not only the community, but the children who are going to be born in that community. And so I didn't have half a million dollars to apply to get a license. Do you know I'm in CRTC? And I don't know whether I should say this, but I will. It's, a, it's also an organization that looks at just English and French. So you can have a unilingual license in English or in French. But if you want to have a license in, say, Hindustani or Punjabi, I'll have to have a multilingual license. 
that means I'll have to have a minimum of 10 to 15 to 17 languages so that I could apply for and, and get a license. And even that process took to find a frequency, to pay for the legal fees, to apply for it, long time. So I looked at uh, an option of broadcasting on a subcarrier frequency of an existing FM station. And that knowledge came to me when I was working for CHQM as their night operator doing their FM programming, which was and, and another programming on that FM frequency, which was called elevator music for, uh, you know, uh, grocery stores or elevators. Uh, when you go into an elevator, there used to be music playing. That used to come from CHQM. And that technology was there. So I was working with them in 1974, 75, but not until 1987 did I understand that technology and then apply to the commission, not through me, but through uh, JR Country to get a 24-hour station. And that's how I started Rimjim. You have the distinction of being the first Indo-Canadian woman to be granted a CRTC license. Was that a logical next step for the business? Or did you have a sense that this was an important benchmark for you to reach on a more personal level? No, it was just the next phase. I understood the industry. I understood how to get a on-air license. I also had competition. And I could not sustain myself on a subcarrier frequency, declining uh, because from Blaine, Washington, and uh, from Ferndale, Washington, there were two stations coming into British Columbia over the air, 1550 and 1600, which sort of very quickly started eating into my profits. So I decided in 2003 that I would apply for a over-the-air license. But by that time, good FM frequency were gone. So I opted out for a very strong AM frequency, which is 1200 AM. It was a, a Victoria station. That meant that we needed land to build our towers. It took us two years before the commission uh, looked at it and said, all right, if we, if we hear you, we'll have to open it up for competition. And I had no other option but to say, yes, open it up for competition. At the end of it all, uh, the commission licensed us, which was my license to lose. So I got that. And they also gave a license to an FM station, hoping that these two stations would give competition to the two U.S. stations. But that never happened. So now in the community, we have two, four, six stations catering to 300,000 South Asians. In terms of the competitive landscape, you've mentioned to me earlier that there have been some pandemic challenges. What are your thoughts on you know, the state of radio at present? Well, I think radio is here to stay forever. I don't believe that radio would ever diminish completely. I remember when television came, came up, we all thought radio was going to be gone by the wayside and now digital media is here and we think everything is available you know the minute it happens you can see it but i think radio has got responsibility of presenting ethical and balanced viewpoint and telling the story in a balanced way instead of 
taking sides. So I think radio would always have a place in a person's life because it, it comes with a lot of responsibility and a lot of respect for the profession. So journalism, I, I believe, in written form or in spoken form will always be there. There are a lot of women, particularly in the Vancouver market, who say you were the first woman of color they saw on TV who looked like them. How does it feel when up-and-coming broadcasters tell you that you're the reason they knew they could pursue a career in broadcasting? Wow, what a beautiful statement, you know, that they feel that whatever I was doing at that time was something that was making them feel that they could do it as well. I didn't think I was doing anything great. I always felt that I wish I was I was able to do way more than what I had done. I am so pleased and so proud of these young women. And many of them have worked with me and I wish them more success. Young men, young women of our community to be a part of the mainstream, something that I always wanted to be. I think that is beautiful. It is, well, it's taken, what, 30 years, but you know, the very first young woman from our community was Belpuri. I, I was so happy to see her doing sports. I, I was just so pleased to see her and all the other young women that are coming up. It is a very, very nice feeling. There's been an increasing awareness of the need for media to be more representative of the community it serves. What are your thoughts on how far the industry has come and how far it still needs to go? It needs to go way further. Um, I, I do see that the issues are tackled. The South Asian issues are tackled, in my case, being a South Asian. But I do feel that, say, for example, a South Asian reporter is there, they would be given that particular job just to go and do that story. And I think it would be a, a much better idea to have a non-South Asian do that story to bring a different perspective to the story instead of giving it to just the South Asian uh, person because happens to be from the same community. Yes, there are pros and cons of that. The, the pro for a South Asian doing a story about South Asians will be that they would understand it. The con would be that they are in the community. So some stuff that, that is natural to them won't be natural to non-South Asians. So if a non-South Asian person is doing this story, it would be a much better idea. Also, I feel that because the community is so powerful now because of its numbers and people that are in visible, better positions, may it be in politics or business, the community's bad influence of gangs and violence and drugs, that gets talked about more than the good that the community is doing. There are a lot of people in the South Asian community who have started with nothing and have made huge businesses and are trying to give to the community in many different ways. Uh, and I think those stories need to be told as well in mainstream rather than just the drug and gang stories. Is there a thought you want to close on? Yeah, I think I am a, a very fortunate person to be in a profession that I can talk my mind and I can talk as as long as I want to <laughs> on my own program. 
And I think it makes me feel that I have been a very lucky person to be able to do what I wanted to. And I would like to say to young people who are looking at journalism or broadcasting or any other profession that put it out in the universe. The universe is waiting to help you out and make you realize your dream. So dream, and then your dream will come true. Congratulations again on your Lifetime Achievement Award, and thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you for asking, Connie. listening to Broadcast Dialogue. For more information about the podcast or to receive exclusive access to our weekly briefing about the Canadian media industry, visit us at broadcastdialogue.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, connect with us on LinkedIn and follow us on Twitter and SoundCloud. Jeff Woods and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com.